Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds. Today's very special guest is Greta Gerwig, a writer, actor and director whose work I am absolutely in love with. But before we dive in with Greta, I wanted to answer a listener request, as I keep getting so many wonderful emails from all of you. Alexis from Sydney, Australia writes, To mark your arrival in Australia for the first time since Mardi Gras 2020, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for your favourite things to do in Australia. Alexis, thank you so much for your question. I loved my last trip in Australia and I did some really, really fun things while I was out there and some of the most recent things, I guess, off the top of my head that I can remember that I loved while in Australia. I loved going to Pine Lone Koala Sanctuary in Brisbane. That was really cute. And I mean, they have so many different animals that you can hang out with and play with and feed. So I really enjoyed that. One of my favorite things to do in Sydney is do the Bondi to Bronte walk along the coast. That's really peaceful for me. My favorite time to go is sunrise. So I I really love that. I love a restaurant and wine bar in Melbourne called Hope Street Radio, which my friend Troy took me to that I had a really, really fun night in. I also went to Grant Street Beach in Perth, which was really wonderful. And I had a really nice day recharging in the sunshine before my show. So those are my top picks for Australia. If you want me to answer one of your list questions on next week's episode, don't forget to send a message to podcast at service95.com. Stay with me through a short break, after which I'll be back with Greta Gerwig. In just two decades of working professionally in the entertainment industry, Greta Gerwig's name has become shorthand for quality, care, and depth. Her projects are consistent, thoughtful crowd pleasers, filled with a sort of crackling, joyful dialogue you won't find elsewhere. When you see her name attached to a film, whether it's as an actor, a writer, a director, or some combination of the three, you know you're about to settle in to watch something absolutely amazing. Greta made her first entry into Hollywood with Hannah Takes the Stairs and Nights and Weekends, movies she made with her New York City friends in the early 2000s as part of what many call the Mumblecore movement. You got a new suitcase? You smell the same. Yeah, you smell the same too. You have more of a unibrow. You've let your nose hairs grow a little bit. You have a bit more chest hair. Mm-hmm. You're prettier. She entered the 2010s with Greenberg, her first project with director Noah Baumbach. He's now her other half and a frequent creative collaborator. Their writing work continued on Greta's true breakout, Frances Ha, a beloved film about dreams, reality, and the thin line that exists between the two. And you look across the room and catch each other's eyes, but but not because you're possessive or it's precisely sexual, but because... That is your person in this life. And it's funny and sad, but only because this life will end. And it's the secret world that exists right there in public, unnoticed, that no one else knows about. Her adaptation of Little Women depicted adolescence, family, and womanhood with unflinching frankness and grace. No, no one makes their own way. Not really. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't we? Well, that's because I'm rich. 
2023 brings the most anticipated movie of Greta's career, Barbie. Though originally only attached as a writer, Greta was hired by actor and producer Margot Robbie to direct the project too. Since filming began earlier this year, Barbie has become the talk of the town. From leaked roller skating paparazzi photos of Margot and her co-star Ryan Gosling, who's playing Ken, naturally, to a non-stop string of delightfully bonkers casting announcements, it's shaping up to be a must-see movie before we've gotten our hands on a single glimpse of footage. I'm so thrilled to say that my recent conversation with Greta is one of my absolute favorites yet. We went long and could have gone even longer. And yes, to the eager Barbie fans who have tuned in, don't fret, because Greta and I talked all about it. It's the first time Greta's spoken at length about Barbie ever, so you won't want to miss a moment. Please join me in welcoming this week's very special At Your Service guest, Greta Gerwig. Hi, Greta. How are you doing? Hello, I'm very well. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm so happy to hear and speak with you. Yes, and I need to know, what is the day in Australia and what time is it? <laughs> it's Saturday Okay. and it's 9.30 in the morning. Okay, <laughs> it's still Friday yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so. How's beautiful autumnal New York? Oh, it's, it's just raining and it's, it, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's also, um, everybody's mad. It's like the first real fall <laughs> rain and everybody's just really angry at each other. So it feels, I have to say, after being in London for a while, it's like, oh, right. Yes, I remember New York. Everyone's <laughs> kind of mad. <laughs> yeah, I love New York. Sometimes I feel like even if the weather's like bad or good or whatever, the sky's always blue. But when it's not, I think people do go a little bit bonkers. Yes, it's it's a, it's a it, it, but it's it's sort of wonderful for that reason. It makes me feel like I don't know. I've never quite gotten over the fact that I even like live in New York City. I still feel grateful every day here because I think I made it. I live in New York. <laughs> yeah. What an achievement. I think I, you know, have so many cinematic memories of it. And mm. um, yeah, it's the place I've always wanted to live. And I still really can't believe I do. Oh, I love, I love New York. I love New York for exactly that, that reason too. Did you see any um, Barbie costumes strolling through the city on Halloween yet? Oh my gosh, I did. I saw a Barbie costume oh, in the wild at a party. <laughs> It was crazy. Yeah, I was I was texting with Marco and Ryan, and then Ryan saw a Ken costume. He's in Australia, and he saw a Ken in the wild. Oh, my God. A Ken in the wild. <laughs> it was, That's good. A Ken in the wild. He said, I don't think his Barbie's coming. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, that guy's just going to wear neon all night. It was surreal. It was surreal. So fun. Well, we're definitely going to get into... Barbie a little bit before our time is up but Great. I wanted to um I wanted to start by asking a question related to Ladybird which is one of my favorite films oh thank you it stars Shasha Ronan and Laurie Metcalf as this like beautifully complicated daughter and mother and so much of like the movie's DNA is inspired by your childhood growing up in Sacramento California which I think is a mm -hmm. city that I think many of us don't know that much about but one that you sold so beautifully in the movie. Can you tell me a little bit about Sacramento and your childhood there and how did it and does it continue to inspire you and in your work? I love Sacramento. I loved growing up there. I I mean, I, I feel very lucky to be from a place. I think to have deep roots in a place and to have people who've known me my whole life mm. and to have a real... Um, 
almost like topography inside of myself. And I think um, in a way, I, I <laughs> when you're growing up and you love art or you love writers, and I, I loved novelists and poets and playwrights, and they and there were so many people who had such a strong sense of place that those were always the people and the writers that I gravitated towards, whether it was, you know, Irish writers or, you know, Southern writers like Tennessee Williams or Athel Fugard was a playwright in, in South Africa. Like this real sense of they are writing from somewhere, mm. almost like a dispatch from somewhere. But I never thought that where I was from, it never felt lofty enough somehow. Um I think that's probably part of just being young and being a child. And then I was lucky enough, though, to have um, good teachers give me the writer Joan Didion. I love Joan Didion. Was from Sacramento, and she wrote about Sacramento. And there was suddenly, it was like a little light bulb went off. And I, other than just the feeling of like, you can write from where you are. (laughs) You don't Mm -hmm. have to have had a different life. And I think I sort of had always thought like, I'd had some kind of idea of, um, I don't know, whatever mythology I had from, like, Hemingway or something, that he, like, was an ambulance driver and a bullfighter. <laughs> like, I have to do all these other things. And I was like, well, maybe look around and write where you're from. Yeah. And so that kind of, I know that's sort of like the first advice they give you, write what you know. But I think at some level, most people, young people, you don't feel that it's, worthy or something. And then you think, well, no, I mean, Chekhov only lived in Russia. He Mm. wrote about Russia. (laughs) You gotta gotta kind of start where you are. So I really do want to go back and make more movies there. And I will. There's something about it. It's a city, but it's a small city. Its roots are in agriculture. It's um, a government town. It doesn't feel like the rest of California. It certainly does not feel like what people's idea of California is. And yet it's deeply, deeply California. And it's um, actually I got to go to Joan Didion's funeral, um, the memorial service, not that long ago. Hilton Owls spoke really beautifully at it. And he recounted a a passage from one of her books. And um, it just brought me back (laughs) to, to Sacramento because she articulated that so beautifully uh, is, um, She says, uh, I remember being taken to call upon a very old woman, a rancher's widow, who is reminiscing, the favored conversational mode in Sacramento, about the son of some contemporary of hers. The Johnson boy never did amount to much, she said. My mother protested. Alva Johnson, she said, had won the Pulitzer Prize when he was working for the New York Times. Our hostess looked at us impassively. He never amounted to anything in Sacramento. And I was, <laughs> I was sitting there, and I was like, she got she got it. That's exactly right. It's like this sort of mm, regionalism, this sort of like... Small uh, town kind of. Kind of. Did, did, you, did you make it in Sacramento? Mm-mm-mm. And I, I kind of always loved that, and that she was able to focus in on that. And I was reminded again at her memorial how much she had given me permission. So I think I would credit her, really, with starting to look at it. And then... Um, I think it'll be something I return to. And my roots are so deep there. My brother is there with his family. And it's I don't know what to say other than it's it's mine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's so beautifully put. It's it's interesting because also while I was um reading some interviews and 
listening to some of your interviews as well and you were talking about the character in Ladybird and you were saying how, you know, when you're young, you can't help but feel that life is happening elsewhere. You know, you're kind of hell-bent on the fact that whatever you're doing, there's something happening around the corner that's much more exciting than what's happening Mm. in your life somehow. But I think this kind of idea of staying connected to your roots and something being yours, you kind of learn to appreciate it later on in your life. Um, At least maybe that's kind Mm. of what I feel like I connected so much with the character. There's so many bits of teenage angst and growing up and (laughs) understanding yourself that you connect with and then you go, okay, all these things happen for a reason because this is where I was supposed Mm. to be and these are the things that made me who I am. And I've connected a lot with... um, with a lot of your work so I'll I'll tell you more about that as we as we go on um (laughs) but um I heard you started writing at a really young age you know like on buses in Mm. chemistry class at the dentist's office like do you remember Mm. what you'd write about or what was inspiring you or why has writing just been the thing that's remained such a staple in your life I mean for a long time as is true I you know it's not particular to me but a lot of my writing when I was young was writing I never showed anyone. I think this is changing and it's, you know, different now. But I think, you know, there was sort of a thing, I think especially when I was growing up, like if, I think if you're a boy who wrote a lot, people might say, well, you might want to be a writer. <laughs> and if you were a girl who wrote a lot, they say, well, why don't you have this diary with a lock and key and never show anybody what's That's inside? <laughs> and That's true. And I know. It's, a, <laughs> it's like, lock it away. <laughs> I thought, gosh, that's such a weird message um, <laughs> to give girls um, to, to lock it up. But um, it was my way of digesting the world. Um, it was my way of kind of being being funny, being witty, imitating other writers I liked. I think it had a lot to do with how much I was reading as well. And, um, you know, I think as all kids and then teenagers are, you're not able to come up with the funny, wonderful, quippy thing in the moment. So then you do it later in your notebook. And um, (laughs) I just, I have honestly boxes and boxes of writing. They weren't really journals in a classic sense. They were sort of anything. They were kind of dialogue for plays or it was kind of a catch-all for anything that um, was going through my mind. But um, I don't know other than it feels sort of compulsive at this point, but I don't, I can't get through the day without, um, if I haven't taken something down, it feels like I haven't existed that day. Oh, wow. So you still do that all the time? All the time. <laughs> all I'm, the time. I, I, I realize it, may, it sometimes <laughs> makes other people nervous, <laughs> it makes, because, which I didn't realize until my partner, Noah, was like, you know, it, it, it looks like you're just writing about me <laughs> all the time. And I was like, I'm not, oh, don't worry, I'm not. I was like, <laughs> it makes you look That's so sort funny. of... Like you're in you're a like, therapy session or something. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me how you feel today. <laughs> exactly. I, uh, I heard your mum was um, a little bit worried about your career prospects as a teenager mm. and she encouraged you to become, <laughs> I found this really, really funny, a certified step aerobics instructor and a certified paralegal. That's, I was, yes. <laughs> I love that that's um, a really, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's that's like a stable kind of, thing yes yeah yeah 
she was like, I don't know if this is going to work out, but people will definitely want to exercise and they will definitely need help organizing legal documents. Um, <laughs> Smart. I mean, I, I yeah. get it. Parents have, have, you know, when I read that, I thought it was really funny because my parents also, when I was like, I'm going to do music and I, I'm just going to like not go to university, they're like, what the fuck? They're like, you sure? Can't you just do both? In the end, they ended up being like, super supportive and encouraging when I just went for it. I'd love to know how your like mom and dad encouraged your career that you have now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so true. I mean, I feel like all parents, my, a friend of mine, Trey, when he was graduating from Yale, I remember we grew up together in Sacramento and he said there was a speaker who said, like, follow your dreams. And his dad looked at him and it was like, do not follow your dreams. <laughs> we did not pay for you to go to Yale. No, it was, and then we were just laughing because we were like, well, we're from the same place. Um, and he has followed his dreams and it's worked out. But um, honestly, I think, you know, it was like a certified paralegal, certified step aerobics instructor, and then being CPR certified every year, because if you know CPR, like that, like puts you in line to do lots of things. And I was also a bartender, like anything... I could do that I could get certified for. I think um, it was important that it feel like I have some way to be gainfully employed. <laughs> and then, you know, I think so, like so many people, which I totally understand is for them, I did go to college and I, I went to a liberal arts school and I majored in uh, English literature and philosophy. And um, I... I didn't, I knew at that point that I really wanted to be, you know, for lack of a better word, with show people, with actors and, and directors and the set design. I wanted to be around theater and movies. That's what I loved. Um, but I think, you know, understandably, I think they had a real sense of like, isn't there a degree you could get for that? Like, could you go to, you know, graduate school? So I applied to graduate school, to three different graduate schools for playwriting, and I didn't get into any of them. And wow. I think at that point they were like, well, I think that seems like a sign that you, <laughs> this is not, you don't seem to be doing this very well. But I, I think in the end, for me, it was lucky that I, I didn't get in because I think it, um, it sped up the part where I had to bet on myself, mm. I suppose, because I didn't have anyone telling me that it looked really that promising. Yeah. So it was, a, I didn't have a piece of paper or anything official. So um, I kind of had to cobble it together. But I, I you know, I, I was very lucky with the people I was in contact with in New York and who were working in theater and film. And it is sort of a learn on your feet thing anyway. I mean, if I'd gotten into grad school, I'm sure it would have been wonderful too. But yeah, it was part of your journey. It made me leap. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I I, um, I enrolled to like singing drama, like performance school in London as well, and I got turned mm -hmm. down, and I appealed, and I got turned down again. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> so and I, crazy. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, like. Why is this happening to me? Like, clearly I'm not good enough. And I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to sing. And I was like, you know, and I play the cello and I can do this. And it was a nightmare and they still didn't want me. And I was like, fuck, like, maybe this isn't for me. But I think those those moments of getting turned down, like you said, push you to make the leap and just go, okay, no one else is 
believing in me. So I have to get out there and believe in myself. And I have to just put myself out there and do something that I'm, I'm really, really passionate about. And it's also interesting to hear all the other different jobs that you did, because it sounds like you're quite, <laughs> quite the polymath in the way that I think all these things have, <laughs> have helped you become who you are, whether it's in your, in your acting, in your writing, mm. in your directing. I think all mm. these moments in your life, all these paths have really shaped who you are and how you navigate through life. And, you know, I'm one of many, many fans of your beautiful movies and performances. And I'd love to just, you know, how you said that you'd like to be around show people. Like, how was it that you mm. first got into the entertainment business? Like, you once told the director, Francis Ford Coppola, that you thought as a child that movies were handed down by God. So tell me, like, <laughs> when does your relationship with movies begin and, you know... Sure. Where did it take you over the course of like your early years? Well, movies were actually, they did seem handed down by God. We grew up without um, a television or really going to the movies. So I didn't see a bunch of movies growing up. Um, my parents were very good about taking me to theater, which is what I was interested in most of all, and dance and music. But I, I watched a ton of theater you know, they would drive me to the Bay Area and we would see productions. At, um, there's a theater, Berkeley Rep, which is great, and ACT, which is also great. And there's a Shakespeare Festival in Oregon that we'd go to. I was seeing a great deal of theater and very obsessed with theater, but didn't really have a feeling about film until I got to college in New York. And it was the first time I'd been in a city that had movie theaters that were showing old movies in repertory. And there were a few movie theaters. There was the Film Forum downtown, Anthology Film Archives, the Museum of Moving Image, and then MoMA. MoMA would do screenings of movies. And then there was a video store that no longer exists called Kim's Video, which was great. It had tons of movies. It was actually, there was a Kim's uptown and a Kim's downtown. It was all organized by director, Mm. So you wouldn't say like, oh, I want to see a comedy or I want to see a, you know, a thriller. You'd have to know who the director was. And that sort of recentered everything. So I was going to movies all the time in the city. And then I kind of started just working my way through different directors and realizing like, oh, you really love, you know, Howard Hawks or you really love Robert Altman or, oh, you're interested in Chantal Ackerman. Like it suddenly things started to connect differently about mm. You know, really like auteur cinema, but like the truly where's the author? And um, yeah, I remember the Kim's downtown actually had a. <laughs> it was so snobby. It had a. It was wonderful. But they <laughs> they had a pornography section, which was also organized by a director. <laughs> and I was like, who's who knows who a porn director? Like that's like so intense and amazing. But. Um, and the and the oh the clerks who worked at Kim's were also like great because they were really judgmental about what you rented. <laughs> but if they thought you were sort of interested in interesting things, they'd point you in the right directions. They were sort of like, yeah, like record store employee. Like I, I mean, they sold records too, but like for movies, they just knew a lot. That's funny. So I started falling in love with movies, and I think the movie that sort of shit for me clinched it rather. There's this movie, Claire Denis made a movie called um, Beau Travail. And that was the movie that I saw that really hit me that cinema was a, just a totally different art form. 
and it had its own language, and that I didn't speak it, but I really wanted to. And Mm. I think that that, um, that's really never gone away. I think that that's the thing I feel like is the, how do they, someone told me, oh, you never want the mountain to be behind you. It's always good to have the mountain in front of you. And I feel like cinema as a language is something that I feel that I, I'll never quite have my hands fully around, mm. which is part of what makes it satisfying. That's a really good way to put it. And I love that because it's really visual as well. And I think for as long as you feel that way, then you're probably in exactly the right place, you know? Um, yeah. As long as you feel like you have something new to conquer and something to reach for. <laughs> it's cool. It's I, I've not one. had I've not had that before. And now I'm like, fuck yeah, I still feel like that about music. <laughs> so that's, right. yeah. I know it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't really answer how I got into it, but I guess it answers how did I get interested. Yeah. Um, but, how you got interested and how, how that... I think um, yeah. when I was uh, researching for our chat today, I learned about an area in cinema that I hadn't heard about called Mumblecore. And <laughs> yes. I thought it was quite a funny name, actually. When you first started yeah. acting with roles in movies like Hannah Takes the Stairs and yeah. Nights and Weekends, yeah. critics kind of just put you into this like mumblecore scene which I saw described as like a style of low budget film like characterized with non-professional actors and naturalistic or improvised performances Mm. and one critic even said that your calling card was seemingly unrehearsed screen presence like did you (laughs) feel like that sort of labeling of your career was dismissive of of the work that you were making like did it ever make you want to push back against that perhaps or like the expectations Mm. that had suddenly been put on you as as someone at like the forefront of mumblecore (laughs) yes well I I didn't really ever set out to be uh the the forefront of of mumblecore I just um to be honest it was I don't want to say because now in in hindsight everything kind of fits together in a certain way but um at the time again I was you know applying and getting rejected from graduate schools but I was also starting to make things like really really rudimentary um early short films and small projects I was just doing on my own with my friends and that was all possible because digital movie cameras became a lot cheaper and more available and better around 2005, 2006. And um, Final Cut was editing software that was widely available and you could teach yourself how to do it. And I think for me, it was, I mean, this certainly wasn't making my living doing these films. Mm. Part of it was, in a way, it felt extremely free. It felt extremely experimental. It was a thing I was very committed to at the time. I really was interested in where scenes could go if you were given kind of a character and a scenario, but no lines. And I think Mm. it was kind of maybe my own rebellion against theater where language is everything. And um, it was a very sort of organic, yeah, I just keep going back to the word experimentation. But I met some wonderful people and friends who also took it really seriously and you know in 2006 at South by Southwest Film Festival 
I met Josh Safdie, who made, um, he and his brother made Uncut Gems and mm-hmm. um, lots of other movies. But um, In Good Time, we, too. Like and, that, that, yeah. yeah, and they're great. I mean, they're incredible filmmakers. And, you know, we were both 21, 22, and mm-hmm. just really interested in movies. And they were making stuff, and I was making stuff. And then it kind of just started plugging into this scene of people who were working day jobs, making movies and kind of fearlessly trying things out. And um, so cool. I think it was just, it felt like if in some ways the sort of official academic theater doors seemed closed to me, filmmaking seemed like the Wild West and it seemed like anything was possible. And so it was really just, I, I, I went through a whole period in my life where I was just saying yes to everything. It wasn't strategic. I didn't worry about how it would be received. It was shocking to me that anyone was looking at these movies at all. I remember even when an agent called and said they wanted to be my agent. I was like, "Go ahead. I don't know. That, <laughs> I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. Like this is I, this is all an experiment." And I, but then I I started going on proper auditions um, because I I was like, "All right, well, I'll try to do this." And I I don't think I booked a single job that way, which was. But I got better at auditioning, and I mm. and I I enjoyed memorizing lots of scenes for pilots and stuff that never got picked up, and it was like my hobby was auditioning. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it was a it was a funny time. But there was all kinds of things. Now I'm legitimately old, and I can look back. And there was also a time because it, the internet was different then, and people thought that web content was different than other content. So they would hire kids who were like 23, 24 to make web shows, which was a thing. That's which now so, sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah. nobody <laughs> nobody does, like just web content. So there was like movies and then that. And it was, you know, nobody was really, it was like we were all unofficial. And then one day we all looked around and we were like, did we, when did we get official? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a really you know? like freeing experience you know and it's so it's just so cool to hear you hear you talk about it especially now like looking at your incredible career and just being like fuck like you know you have to go through the motions and do the things that you love and the things that you're passionate about in the moment and then not to necessarily have to be a strategy behind everything I love like you saying how like someone wanted to be your agent and you just being like fuck yeah go ahead um let's see <laughs> yeah. let's see what happens yeah. it's it's really cool and i think it's super inspiring to to hear you talk about that and and i know that there have been like a couple of you know big big projects that you were set to be a part of that didn't ultimately move forward mm-hmm. including hbo's adaptation of jonathan france's novel the corrections and later right. a, a spin-off of how I Met Your Mother called How I Met Your Dad. Yeah. Like, tell me a little bit about, like, how you look at those kind of dejections now, years later. Like, how did they help inform or inspire what you did next? Yeah, the corrections was sad because I really loved the book and, and Noah was working on it. And it was it was something that I thought could have been really neat and exciting. But I don't know. I don't know if hindsight's twenty twenty, but... I think I always had a feeling that it wasn't going to happen. And I wasn't sure why I had that feeling. But I kind of thought, I don't know that this is going to work. But I do remember I got to act with Ewan McGregor, which was very exciting. Oh, and, cool. uh, made me feel like I was a real, 
actor. <laughs> and so that was that was neat. Um, and then, yeah, it's so funny. I How I Met Your Dad, I really had really loved the show How I Met Your Mother, and I thought it was really sweet and funny. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do or where I was going to go. And it was something that came up, and I was a fan of their writing. And I said, well, I might be interested in writing on it, too. And it was actually a really exciting, fun process because it still exists, but it's different now. The kind of classic sitcom writing and the classic sitcom structure on network television. And it has a very specific way. I mean, How I Met Your Dad wasn't filmed with a live audience, though they did have a laugh track, but it was shot sort of in the same way, like multi-cam. So it's almost like a strange, wonderful vaudevillian theater thing. Like, And you're writing hard jokes to commercial. So you, there's like the jokes that end, and it's, you know, you see it on Friends or on Seinfeld all the time as they're writing to these commercial breaks. And even though it didn't happen, I felt like it it sort of focused my energy and it made me really happy to be part of because it felt like, um, again, it was like show people. It's like this really interesting, specific art form, which is the half-hour network television sitcom. And it's really rigorous and it's really demanding. Mm. And it has these very clear parameters and... It got me out of a rut I was in, I think, artistically at that moment. And um, and then I later heard they took the show to Vegas to test it, and they sit with these knobs, and they, (laughs) if they like something, they turn the knob to the right, and if they don't like it, they turn it to the left. And every apparently every time I came on screen, everybody turned. (laughs) turn their knob to the left <laughs> and they were like never mind we're not gonna move forward with this show and i think i think someone wrote wrote a card that was like why would you ever make a show about this woman so it, but it, no. but, and, but honestly it's a world that i hadn't been part of and it was i don't know it's fun to be in there for a second yeah i guess again like i think a, a recurring theme that that has been happening during this whole conversation is like all these experiences bring you to to where you are. And now, who's laughing now? Exactly. And also, I didn't start out because I just loved, I loved, again, I loved writers, I loved actors, I loved directors, I loved theater, I loved film, I loved show people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a real strong sense of there's one future and one way that this is going to work out. And if it doesn't work out this way, I'm going to be devastated. I just loved being around it. And so I figured, well, you know, even if I can't be a writer or even if I can't be, you know, a a director or actor or something, they've got a lot of jobs on movie sets. I could do one of them. I don't have this sense of like, oh, this is off of what my dream is. Mm. Anytime I'm with show people, that was always my dream. I'll be back with Greta Gerwig after this very short break. With both Little Women and the Mm -hmm. upcoming Barbie movie, you know, you were initially attached Mm -hmm. to it as a writer and not as a director, but you've ended up directing both. And I have to tell you that when I watched Little Women, it wrecked me. Like, honestly, from halfway through the film, I was 
bawling uncontrollably. <laughs> um, and I kept checking to see, I was like, oh my God, how much longer is this movie? Because normally I would cry at the end of the film. And this one got me all the way halfway through and all the way to the end. It was like a purging. I literally, I finished watching the movie. My face was twice the size. I was completely swollen. It was just, it was just brilliant. Like I, I loved, loved, loved your version so much. Thank you. And I mean, there were just so many moments. Again, like Shersha's character somehow just mm. gets me mm. in in so many different ways. I mean, there's one moment where she goes like, "I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe." Let me tell you, I know. wrecked me. <laughs> I was like, of course. <laughs> I know. She like wants to go Sasha and follow her just... dreams and just like write and go to New York. And I, I was know. Like, it's just, it was, I it know. was intense for sure. Honestly, Sersha in that scene killed me when we were shooting it because she's talking to Emma, who's her sister, Watson. And she's like, it's like right before her sister's wedding. And she's like, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. We got to go. We can't get married. And I, and there's something about it. And the way she was so, and she, the, I remember she had this line like, you're going to be bored of him in five years and we'll be interesting forever. I know. And I, I just line. like the way she said it, I was like, oh, she kills me. So I'm glad you were also killed by yeah, her. Yeah, she killed me. But it was so special. I was like, oh my God, like I love being able to feel so much and to have the opportunity to do that. And just to like, mm. I don't know, sometimes you just need something like that mm. to just help you release mm. everything that you were holding in. But I want to know, like for you, what's like different mm. and fulfilling about each role, like acting, writing, directing? Mm. What does one give you that, that others don't? Well, um, I, I mean, I think it, for me, everything comes back to writing because, I don't know, it's the place where I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, euphoric and terrified doing all of them, but it's the place I'm most deeply aware of all of the voices that are rattling inside that tell me not to do it. And mm. then it's um, the most triumphant when I am able to kind of, you know, um, slay the dragon of <laughs> self-doubt and go in and get something out of it. It feels like it's the key for me. You know, for me, especially growing up acting and, and how much I loved theater, I, um, I think in a way it was a way to embody the words that I loved when I memorized them and acted them and even being in, you know, student productions of great plays, you know, you memorize them and then you you take them into yourself in mm -hmm. some way. And I was actually just, I was reading, there was an article about Bob Dylan in The New Yorker and he's talking about where his songs come from and he said, like, these songs didn't come out of thin air. I didn't make them up out of whole cloth. It came out of traditional music, traditional folk music, traditional rock and roll, traditional big band swing orchestra music. If you sang John Henry as many times as me, John Henry was a steel-driving man, died with a hammer in his hand. John Henry said a man ain't nothing but a man. Before I let that steam drill drive me down, I'll die with that hammer in my hand. If you had sung that song as many times as I did, you'd have written, how many roads must a man walk down to? And I was like, that's right. 
you memorize them, mm. you take them into yourself, and then the act of writing feels like talking back to it or continuing that line. Like, mm. and that's, and I was like, he's right. It's, it's, it, it, and there's something about, you know, I'm not a musician, so I don't know what it feels like, but singing other people's songs is like memorizing other people's words and acting them. Like it, it gives yeah, yeah, you an yeah. access point to then start making things up out of your own core. So I would imagine it's the same thing, but I spent a lot of time memorizing all kinds of texts from Carol Churchill to Kenneth Lonergan to Shakespeare to Chekhov. And, you know, I don't know that I was the best person to do any of that stuff, but the rhythms got into me and the kind of desire to write came out of that. And then directing is just, I still feel like I'm um, an elementary speaker <laughs> of the language. Oh my gosh. And I, no, no, it's, it's true though. It's, but it's like wonderful. And then it, what's so great about it is it's so hard. And then I see other people's movies and I, I love the way they speak it. And it's like I, it deepens my enjoyment of watching other people's movies is trying to make them myself. Um, but in, in, a, in a way, I don't know, I always had an access point with words, which was, well, even if I can't make perfect ones today, I can memorize something and, and then it'll be a way to get to my own. I don't know if with music, I, I always imagine you could, if you don't have your own song, you could maybe like play someone else's song for a little while and see if that like <laughs> jogs something in you. Yeah, and I think, you know, just being moved by something that you love or, you know, someone's text, someone's lyrics, someone's story, you get so inspired, you know. I, a lot of the time I, I mean, I, I get so inspired by artists that have quite a lot of, um, I don't know, like self-doubt or some like darkness to it and I'm like god, yeah. oh my god I'm oh, like I know. do I have to feel this much pain to be good at what I do is sometimes <laughs> what I think and you know it's very interesting like sometimes imposter syndrome can also can also get the get the better of me especially when I'm um, writing my own stuff but I do I, I find it really inspiring also to to listen to other people's work as well do you find often that directing your own writing is more satisfying than turning it over to someone else? Well, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I think with a, through the process of writing something, I fall in love with it, and then I want to be the one who tries to interpret it. I mean, there's something about, um, like when I've written with Noah uh, and he's directed, a little part of me feels at ease because I think, well, he's a great director, so he'll do it really well. Like it, it's <laughs> like giving giving up a child for adoption, being like they'll have a better life here. <laughs> um, you're this will be nice for them, but I think for me, it's I, if it's what you were talking about, sort of an imposter syndrome or, or feeling inadequate, is um, I think it's yeah. I mean, I always feel that with you know directing, it's. But doing anything in writing, you know, it's this like, who am I to do this? And why do I think I can do this? And then I think you kind of come to a place where you think, well, even if it's inadequate and even if it's a poor version of something, 
it will be mine. Mm. And that feels worth it. Even if it's got a bunch of flaws, they'll be mine. And I'll be able to say, um, that's a piece of me, as imperfect as it may be. Anything that I've fallen in love with deeply, I I end up uh, directing, I think, at this point. And also, I think, at this point now that I've directed, now writing sort of functions slightly differently because now I'm thinking about directing. Mm -hmm. So I think it inevitably changes the way you write after you've been through the process of what it is to shoot it and edit it and put it together. Then you kind of look at it more functionally than you did before. And I think that so now when I know I'm going to really write something, I'm already thinking about how I'm sort of shadow boxing the whole thing as a director. That's really interesting. Because, yeah, I guess it, it will just like shift and change. But I, I hadn't imagined that I guess the writing process will then change in terms of how you think about directing it in my head, mm. obviously, because I haven't done either. It just feels like, <laughs> you know, you almost like, mold one to the other but I guess they do go Mm. hand in hand and you've talked so much about um the filmmakers and like creatives that inspire you when you Mm. were first getting your start Mm. in the movie business but Mm. I'm gonna ask you to I guess maybe like look inward now like how how does it feel knowing so many young women look up to you and are inspired by you and are there any stories that you've heard Mm. from fans that have moved you Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been given really, really beautiful letters by mostly young women who are, you know, aspiring filmmakers or writers. Because I live in New York, um, there are a lot of, you know, really brilliant young women who are starting to make their way. And sometimes they stop me and we talk and it's very (laughs) wonderful. Honestly, it's very wonderful. I mean, God, I mean... On my inside, I don't feel different from them. (laughs) You know, whatever you're making, you've never made this thing. So you're brand new at this. And, um, you know, you've never made this movie or this song or this anything. You don't know. And so it keeps you in a state of that same, the thing that they feel like, how how is this possible? How 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 do you do it? I think I feel that all the time. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a kind of a feedback loop. But I I think from I I'm inspired by them. I also think young women have also you know now I'm 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 going to be you know a properly middle aged woman like I'm a mom and and I I feel that young women are so light years ahead of where I was. And I'm so impressed when I meet 21-year-olds who just have such a beautiful way of looking at the world and Mm. so much more evolved. And I I feel like I I feel lucky because I think they're all going to be making films and contributing art. And then I'll get to live in the world that has them. Like I can't... Somebody said to me who's actually in business... He said, you're not doing it right if you're not looking to uh, replace yourself. <laughs> you're like, what's the next group? And I think they're just, from all the interactions I've had, I just think they're just knocking, they're knocking at the door. So, mm. and they're, I mean, forget knocking at the door. I don't know. They're building their own castles. It's really inspiring. And they're not waiting for permission. 
which is great. I think that's really cool to, yeah, to hear you say that. And also I feel like, yeah, you're right. It, it is really refreshing to see how like younger generations have such an interesting outlook on life. I see it with my siblings who mm. are younger than me. And I think just the way that they think is so much more evolved. You know, my brother's 16 and he, I feel like at 16, he knows so much more than always so much more um, interested in the way things work in the world. And the same with my sister. I don't know, the world has kind of, maybe it's the internet, maybe it's the way that we've like evolved as people. I don't know, but it's um, it's really interesting and really refreshing and inspiring as well. But what strikes me also is, you know, the representation of women maybe in the business and in this mm. industry and how maybe, yes, we are so evolved and maybe building our own castles, but not necessarily getting the recognition or the space that we deserve maybe mm. and your first two solo directorial movies you know Lady Bird and Little Women were nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards and yet very mm. few women seven I believe I read have ever been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars mm. of mm. which you were the fifth and I'd love to mm. know what you make of that as the rare woman that has been nominated for both categories and I'd love to know how Hollywood and these award shows could in your opinion become a more inclusive sphere yeah well I think it's been you know every year it's something that I have a tremendous amount of you know frustration with because you know, every year I see movies by women that I feel should be held in the, the same esteem, uh, mm. with the same reverence. And luckily, sometimes they are. And sometimes things poke through and sometimes things gather steam. And I think it's happening a lot more lately and has been happening a lot more lately. And you know, I feel like with Nomad Land and there's like there's been moments where it feels like it's feeling like there's momentum in that direction, which is, you know, extraordinary. And I'm, I think it, it's sort of um, slowly and then all at once. I think we're starting to get into the all at once moment. I, I, you know, I think now, I mean, I guess the only way I can look at it is like when I was a teenager, I don't know that I could have named five female directors. Mm. Yeah, I probably couldn't. And when I look at the landscape now, I just, that's just not true. I mean, we have enough female directors. It feels like you have something to pick and choose from. You know, you can say, oh, I'm, I'm interested in this kind and not this kind, or I like this, this kind of movie and not that kind. It doesn't feel like, well, you've got, you've got one, so if you don't like her, <laughs> that's it. I think, you know, young women today could probably point to, you know, 20 female directors, which is, you know, so much better than, than where it had been. I don't know, other than it feels like a lot of really smart, well-meaning people are trying to open doors and keep them open. And they're doing it in ways like, I mean, I have to say, I'm just my one person. But, um, you know, Margot, Margot Robbie was her company, uh, Lucky Chap. That was, you know, she was really founded with her and uh, Tom... And Josie, they, they, they're in their mission statement that mm. they wanted to make movies, um, 
you know, produced by women, directed by women, written by women. And, you know, they made Emerald Fennell's first movie. They're going to make her second movie. Like, they're doing it. You know, they're, they're, and it's things like that where I'm like, you know, again, Margot is building her own castle and, and Hollywood is responding. And, you know, she made, they made I, Tanya, and she's finding these roles in these things that other people weren't. And then she's making them and championing them. And, and it's happening in mass numbers and it's happening all over. And I think that that, that those kinds of things, it's just, um, I mean, this sounds so dull to say, but to me, it's really, it's a numbers game. If you only have, if you have, let's say, I mean, there's more movies than this made a year, but let's say you have 200 movies made a year and, you know, 20 of them are directed by women. Well, that you've got a better shot than if you only have five, but you're going to get, like, the more women who are directing movies, the more chance that, you know, the next masterpiece will be directed by a woman, a woman, like, I, you know. Men make a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> so, and they get a lot of shots. We kind of get so, outnumbered so, uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it's but it really is like put the numbers up, put the numbers up, put the numbers up, and and I find that's true in individual female filmmakers' lives, and also just in in general, it's not just a numbers game, but the numbers do contribute to the likelihood that there's a good outcome. As just as a matter of curiosity for me, Natalie Portman mm. had your name. Mm-hmm. among other women's names embroidered on her Oscar's gown mm-hmm. the year that like no women mm-hmm. including you though you were eligible mm-hmm. for little women but mm-hmm. you know to be nominated for best director like what did you take away from that moment from Natalie's like small act of protest well i i mean i i adore Natalie i actually got to work with her once and um I just love her. I mean, she's, um, I, I got to work with her and then we became friends. And um, it was beautiful what she did. And it was also, I mean, she, it's, to me, she's, I mean, she's directed, she's produced. Um, she's, you know, obviously a brilliant actor. She's, uh, you know, a brilliant woman all around. And I think um, her moment of doing that was, it was like this wonderful artistic way to say it was noticed and I mm. noticed. <laughs> and mm. it was like a, it was a, you know, like a beautiful acknowledgement that, of th- that way. Mm. Like a moment of solidarity almost just. Yes. I don't know. To me, the times that have meant most to me, and while, of course, you know, it's nothing but flattering to be nominated for awards. Of course. Peer recognition, I I think, is even um, more wonderful. <laughs> you know, the academy it is, it is your peers and it is show people. But there's something about like really people you admire. Of course, yeah. Just you know, kind of looking across a, a room and saying, "I see you." I mean, I can't imagine anything more wonderful than that. Oh, that's um, that's really nice. It's it's true that feeling of you know people that you admire also being there and being like you've got this it is a, it's a very different a very very different feeling stay tuned because i'll be back with greta gerwig after this very short break for all our listeners mm. greta and i 
last saw each other this autumn in New York when I had the opportunity to see a screening of a new film she's in. And Greta, it was your other half, <laughs> Noah Baumbach's brilliant mm-hmm. white noise, which I'd love to ask you yes. all about. But firstly, yes. though, I'm hoping that you could tell me about your creative partnership with Noah. You first worked together on 2010's Greenberg, and then you collaborated mm-hmm. on Frances Hart and Mistress America as well. And Noah also, I mm-hmm. believe, co-wrote the Barbie screenplay with you. And, and I just want to know, you know, what do you bring out of each other creatively and... How do you ensure, if you even do, that personal feelings get shelved in favor of your like <laughs> professional wants and needs as you work on a project together? Yeah, well, it's um, <laughs> a, yeah. There's there's some some amount of blending of personal and professional that goes on in our family. But I I love Noah as a, a person, obviously, but as a writer and as a director, he's he's you know he's just my favorite and. Um, what is so wonderful and what was so fun about um, actually getting to work on White Noise together and also writing Barbie together because we hadn't made anything together in a while. We'd just been working separately. Although when I when we're working separately, it's never quite fully separate. We're always very much in each other's work. So I'm reading early drafts of everything of his and vice versa. He's looking at cuts I'm doing. We're very much up in each other's business. It's not like we'll ever go away and make something and come back and say, look what I made. Um, It's just very much part of how we move through the world. But officially working together, it's like a way of being that I think we both really enjoy. It's like there's a third thing. It's not like uh, when we're writing together, it's not like it's half me, half him. It's like a third thing. It's a new thing that we only have access to when there's the two of us. And it's a really fun thing to do. I've never written with anyone but him because it's such a strange, lonely thing to do. And you kind of have to share a brain with someone while you're doing it. And Mm. I don't think that's uh, easy to do (laughs) with just anyone. But I, yeah, when we were writing Barbie, it was just so much fun because it was like we got to make each other laugh all day, every day, and we were living in a secret world no one else knew about but <laughs> us. And um, that was amazing. And then we wrote that, and then after that draft, that was sort of set, and then um, we went to go make White Noise. And then um, as an actor with Noah, sometimes I'll get into this feedback loop, which is really great, which is it, he'll... I think I wrote about this actually for the New York Times about Francis Ha, but he likes doing lots of takes. If we're doing a scene, he'll do it like 40 times on one angle uh, or, you know, where it's like a moving master type thing. But um, we'll get into this flow where, you know, what I'm doing or Adam Driver's doing is inspiring his direction. And then when he directs us, then we get more ideas. And then it just, it becomes this virtuous cycle of obsessiveness, which I think that we can kind of look up and realize that five hours have gone by. And that's a really, um, I don't know, I think that's the most fun place to be in, Mm. is being in that kind of fugue state. While we're on um, white noise, without giving too much away, you play a character named Babette, Mm. who Mm -hmm. is... For a lack of like non-spoilery way of putting it, uh, mm. complicated. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> how would you describe it to people who haven't seen the movie yet? Well, you know, I mean, I loved the book, The White Noise by Don DeLillo. I read it when I was like 19. I thought it was so outrageously funny and great. And I like underlined every page and I was really into it. And then when I read it again, when Noah was looking at adapting it, I found it equally brilliant and hilarious, and also it felt like it was about right now. It felt like it was about the pandemic and everything mm. we're going through and how everything is surreal and heightened and strange and crazy. But it felt like it articulated all of this. But it was, you know, he wrote it in 1985, so it somehow spoke to this moment in 2020. But the character of Babette, Baba, what I would say is she's almost like an archetype of an 80s mother from a movie. She's like Terry Gar in Close Encounters with a Third Kind. Or she's, she's, there's something very comforting about her, very familiar about her. You think, oh, yes, this woman with this big hair and acrylic nails has got it <laughs> under control. <laughs> We're all going to be okay. But then the truth is about this woman— about anybody you dig deeply in, they're a mess. They're crazy. And I think that's, to me, what was so fun is was like this archetype of some, you know, rock-solid mom. And then underneath, it's just the craziest thing yeah. you can think of. It's, I mean, it's, I don't even know where to start, but it's, um, but it's a lot. And I think one thing Noah and I talked a lot about was that the, the movie is many things, but one of the things it is, among being, you know, a disaster movie and a, you know, family dramedy and all these different things, it's a very classic comedy of remarriage. And from Babette, me, and um, Jack, who's Adam Driver, it's refinding each other in the craziest of circumstances with a toxic cloud and drug addiction, affairs, and all these crazy things that sometimes you find each other again in the midst of the biggest mess. Mess, yeah. Yeah. I mean, watching it, it takes you on such an extreme journey. Like, you feel (laughs) so much all at once, and there are moments when you're like, what's happening? And then you're right. Every character is so layered, and you think you have it under control and then you kind of see the reality of life um I know. anyway every everyone should go and, and watch it it's it's brilliant i am um, i have to i have to and i and i'm gonna wrap up soon because mm. i feel like i've gone through your whole life and it's been absolutely <laughs> amazing but one thing that i have to have to talk to you about is barbie and i feel like the idea of Barbie yes. and the movie has been floating around and been talked about for years, but you're the one to finally have made it. What take on the story did you think that you could offer? Like, how did you get the job? What was the audition process like with Mattel? <laughs> you know, did you have to pitch your vision? Like, what was the process like? It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm fascinated oh, by, yeah. by this. Well, you know, you're like the first person I've talked to about this in any real way. Well, I I'd met Margot a long time ago. It was actually sort of right before I was going into production on Little Women. We met about something else, and it didn't end up working out. But um, I liked her so much. I thought she was just really smart and really 
wonderful. And, um, you know, I knew I loved her as an actor. But then when I got to sit and talk to her as a producer, I was like, oh, she's 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 the greatest. I, I think she's um, astonishingly smart, astonishingly, like, on top of everything and really savvy about how to go about things and really great. So I thought, well, if I ever get the chance to work with her again, um, I'll do it. And she had secured the rights to Barbie with her company, had brought it to Warner Brothers with Mattel. So they had it set up at Warner Brothers with Mattel with her. Okay. And then she came to me and said, would you be interested in writing this? And um, and I said, yes. And then I said, and Noah would like to write it too. And I, <laughs> cool. and I had not really talked to Noah about this. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. I think I had a six-month-old baby when I said yes. And I thought... I wasn't necessarily running everything by him. I was, like, finishing <laughs> one movie, and we sort of said—I said yes. And then it was kind of after um, the pandemic started. It was in the March of 2020 that um, Noah said, are we meant to be writing a Barbie movie? <laughs> I said, yes. And he was like, I, I don't have any ideas for that, like— why didn't you sign us up to write a different thing? And I and I was like, because I have a feeling about that. And I was like, I like Margot, and I've got a feeling. And, um, and then sort of the process, it, it was a really, you know, it's some, when I talk about it, it's really boring because I don't know what to say other than the, I went away and started working on ideas, and then I brought a bunch of them to Noah. And then he kind of was like, well, these are pretty good. And then he started writing. And then we just started building it together. And initially, again, I didn't know I was going to direct it. And then there was just at a certain point while we were writing it, I realized I really wanted to direct it because I thought it was so great. And I think the moment I knew I wanted to direct it was that Noah said to me, he's like, are you sure you want to direct this? I was like, oh, are you interested in directing it? (laughs) Like, I was like, oh, no, no, this one's mine. Like, I I said we should do this. But, um, yeah, it was it was. I just got really excited about it. And um, and then, yeah, I actually, sort of the way the timing worked out, you know, I started working on it in earnest in March of 2020, and we started shooting it on March 21st, 2021. No, 2022, so two years after. So it was a you know, long process. Um, but But also... You know, that's about the process. It takes a while to write, and then it takes a while to start putting it all together. But uh, it was, I don't know, it was something that was exciting because it was so, um, it, it had that terror, ter- it was terrifying. I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, oh no, Barbie. <laughs> this, what are we, this, I don't know. <laughs> and I think there's something about kind of starting from that place where it's like, well, anything's possible. And I, I think it just was like, it had that sort of, it, it felt like vertigo starting mm. to write it. Like, where do you even begin? And what would be the story? And And I think it was that feeling I had was knowing that it would be really interesting terror. And um, usually that's where the best stuff yeah, is. Fully outside your like, comfort I am zone. Terrified, terrified of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know 
it, like anything where you're like, this could be a career ender. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I probably should do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I doubt that highly. Um, but I'm, I'm always curious to know this, you know, when directors who are so beloved for their mm. voice and independence are hired to tackle these like massive temples for major mm, studios. Mm. How do you ensure that your vision isn't lost in like in the noise and the compromises? How do you make sure the way that Barbie exists in your mind is the one that's that's going to exist on the screen? For me, it comes down to a few things. Mattel were amazing partners and they have given us such trust and such freedom. And I think that that is incredibly rare. Whatever we wanted it to be, they did not try to micromanage it. They were completely on board as partners. And and that was extraordinary. So there's that element and um, everything, their archives and their everything they have. It was just, I couldn't have asked for better partners in that they are the people who are the you know, the home of Barbie, the protector of Barbie, and that they really gave us their trust was extraordinary. And I think a big reason for that was actually Margot and Tom and the way they also, you know, said this, we want to make this movie and we want to make her vision and we don't need to make any Barbie movie. We want to make this one. So for me, I didn't face a lot of like you can't do this or you can't do that. I was very much supported in what I wanted to do. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is true for you. I usually know on a gut level whether or not something feels right. Yeah. And if it doesn't, it's not, you can't, yeah, you can you, lie to yourself, but it's not going to wind up in a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> um a few years ago, you told Vogue that in future projects, you want to just keep expanding the idea of what stories you can tell. Mm. So as we end, after Barbie, mm. what's on the horizon? And in what ways do you hope to keep expanding the horizons of the stories you tell? Gosh, I, I, I actually, I'm thinking of that, that I said that to Vogue. I was like, what a high <laughs> ambition I had there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good, wonderful ambition. Um I think, you know, it's funny because I think right now, because I'm in this, um, you know, I'm editing and I'm working on the film and I will say highfalutin sort of like ambitious statements. To me, they tend to come in in between times when you're not quite working on something yet. So you're thinking about how wonderful things could be. And I think when you're actually working on something, I forget which director said this. Maybe it was Brian De Palma. But, I mean, this is definitely true when you're on set. When you're on set, like, you know, you have some idea of what you're going to do. And then you get to set and then you're like, all you need to do is just get, stay alive and just get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're just struggling to be like, just make it work. And And so I think for me, like, that sort of pontificating about, like, art form stuff happens when I'm not in the middle of it. When I'm in the middle of it, I'm just like, just stay alive. Just keep going. But I think um, this sounds like a much less, um, I, I don't know, worthy cause. But um, I think one thing that's important is actually anyone who makes anything where what you are doing is making a comp for other people. That feels useful because what then the next filmmaker can do is say, it worked. Um, and I think that that... Uh, that idea of being able to be, like, I hope, I don't know, I hope the fact that, you know, like, Little Women worked, then 
the next filmmaker can say, well, that worked. So, you know, it's possible. And I think it's, um, that sounds like such a less romantic goal, but I think developing comps for the next person is, um, it's very, um, I guess, wonky or sort of inside baseball, but that feels worthy because it just makes it easier for whoever comes next as if they can point to it and say, well, it worked here. So it's possible that it works again. I love that. Greta, thank you so, so much. I have had the best time. This has been the best way for me to wake up on the other side of the world. Um, I've just, I I really just felt so inspired deeply by by this conversation. I mean, you're incredible and inspiring in so many ways, but having the chance to talk to you like this has been has been really, really special for me and I'm sure for Most, all our listeners as well. Mostly I'm just going to think about you not getting into, like, <laughs> singing school. Like, that's just crazy <laughs> to me when you told me. Like, yeah. It just seems, I'd be like, if I could go back in time, that's just, you just want to be like, you're crazy, but you're well, crazy because li- listen to her. It's, it's um, yeah, it was like a performance, performance, drama, arts, music, <laughs> school. It's, it's quite funny, but we'll have to like sit down one day and, and exchange all these stories because they're, they're quite funny. I like to, um, I like to just end my conversations by asking my guests a question. And the one list that I want from you today is... For the young women out there like you, Greta, who are always writing stories, what are five tips for breaking into the film industry that you'd offer them? Oh, God. Five tips for breaking into the film industry. No pressure. (laughs) I would say they probably fall under like one mega tip, which is um, write and make your own work and put it up online that's where everything i mean when i was coming up it was all film festivals which were wonderful but now what's so extraordinary is people you you know gosh you can really make things with your iphone that looks extraordinary you can make things with your friends and i would say make your own things put them out there also keep working keep making them it kind of goes to the numbers thing that i was saying before about like how many movies are you making is while, you know, you want to, of course, you know, refine things and make them as good as you can, I would say make a lot, especially if you're young, make a lot, make a just throw a lot of things at it and see how they, they, they st- like I would make and write more rather than less. And I think um, sometimes, you know, with certain younger, not just women, but, you know, people, are, they get kind of fixated on like, well, this is my script. And and if it's not going to work, I, you know, like I, I'm just sticking with this one script. And it's like, well, if that one's not happening, write the next one. This, this is a very annoying thing to say, but like, I don't know. I always think about, like, I, I, I love Shakespeare. I do. I love <laughs> Shakespeare. But, you know, when you read sort of his work in order, like, He's figuring it out. He doesn't know how to really write a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, he's a genius, but he also isn't as good as mm. he gets, you know. When he first writes it, it's kind of, you know, Titus Andronicus. It's like, well, if you kill your son on page two, nobody really likes you. <laughs> um, like, you know, but then, like, by the time he writes King Lear, he's got it figured out, you know. And so you can kind of see he's always been a genius, but he really figured it out. And I think it's like that high output which is another thing, just keep working through things, like keep trying. 
Be open to the people that you know now might be the people that you need to know. I think sometimes there's this feeling that, like, official people exist somewhere else or, like, one day you're going to meet an official person and that official person will, like, know how to do it better. And not that there isn't expertise, but often the people you're inspired by now are the same people you're going to be inspired by. And I, and this actually does, this is ties into Barbie. Like, the actor, great actor, Kate McKinnon is in Barbie. And... I met her when I was 18 years old in college, and we both did really silly, fun, wonderful comedy shows in college together. And I thought to myself, well, she's the most talented person I've ever met in my whole life. And then she went to be on Saturday Night Live, and everybody thinks she's the most talented person in the world because she is. <laughs> and when I called her and we started talking about doing Barbie, and it, I just couldn't get over the fact that, like, you know— Sometimes at 18, you don't know what you're doing. And sometimes we, at 18, the person you think is the best is the best. Like, maybe the people around you are the people. Mm. You know, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. And, um, oh, fourth, this seems obvious. Watch so many movies. Yeah. There are so many great ones. Watch world cinema, like big Hollywood blockbusters. Watch tiny things. Watch student, like, watch Watch things, develop what you hate, develop what you love, get a real sense of what what is exciting to you. Because I think one thing about watching movies and really expanding that is um, is it makes you remember that cinema can be anything. I think sometimes you you get a little bit narrow, especially when you're you know trying to break in, especially to Hollywood, and you're like, well, here are the rules of screenwriting, and it has to be done this way, and you're like. No, it doesn't. Look at all these movies. It can be anything. And then I think the last thing is um, the times where it's not working out, you can look back and those are the most fruitful times for you creatively. So don't resent where you are. That's beautiful. Greta, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> for your generosity, for your words, for for being so inspiring. I'm, I'm <laughs> feeling really, really energized after this after this conversation so thank you so much um and i hope you have a lovely rest of your evening in new york <laughs> yes i'm going to um a 90th birthday party oh. so it's gonna be yes. a really hot night for me <laughs> it sounds like a hot night <laughs> well, well hopefully thank you. i'll see you soon yes thank you so much thank you that was beautiful Thank you all for tuning in and thank you to Greta Gerwig for being so generous and warm and thoughtful. I felt really energized, buzzing and hopeful at the end of the conversation. I really hope you're all feeling the same after hearing it. You can find Greta's recommendations of the essential places for Sacramento newcomers to visit in this week's issue of Service 95, our free weekly newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. I've got to tell you, she really sold me on Sacramento, so I hope you enjoy her picks too. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Service95. And I'll see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service. Bye. Bye.